As I've already indicated, this evening we're going to not be in Jeremiah, as announced, but rather we were going to go back to the Beatitude and the part of it that I really didn't unpack this morning, just getting getting so involved in the importance of meekness and uh, the way in which meekness is such a needed uh, grace in in the lives of the people of God. I thought I'd get back to that final point, which has to do with why Jesus assigns blessing to the meek. Now, when you really think about the ways in which our Lord sets out those Beatitudes and he assigns reasons why perfectly happy is the person that had these qualities, they all seem to have statements that, that just really resonate, I think, with us. I mean, theirs is the kingdom of God. (laughs) They they shall be comforted. They shall be filled. They shall receive mercy. They shall be called sons of God. They shall see God. I mean, those are things, don't you want those things? Don't you want to see God? Be called a son of God to receive mercy from the hand of God, to be filled with the blessings of righteousness, to be part of God's kingdom, to know the comforts that God brings. And then in the midst of all that, you have, they will inherit the earth. What's the big deal about that? Who cares about earth? We want eternal glory. We want heaven. We want spiritual things. And that's so mundane. That's so earthly. That's so worldly. Why should a Christian even be concerned about the earth? And you know, for a large part of the church's history, it's sort of a part of biblical teaching that got omitted. It kind of got over, 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 uh, passed over. Uh, because people were consumed with the vision of heavenly glory. And most of the hymnity directs the end of life to be that heavenly blessing in the presence of God and we're always called up yonder (laughs) Um, uh, glory glory dwells in Emmanuel's land the the king there in his beauty and and a lot of times it's not connected with what ultimately is the end game and heaven's great but heaven's not the final stop the presence of God and glory is wondrous but it's not the end of all reality there's a new heaven's and a new earth in which righteousness dwells that is, that is promised to the saints and it's part and parcel of the createdness of human life that we've been created Adam dust from the ground we have an affinity to the land that God separated from the seas there was darkness upon the face of the deep and in six days God made a habitable world for humankind that man, his image, would have dominion over it. We'd be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion over it. Um, This was to be the place of man's glorifying God, man's walking with God, man having an eternal relationship with God in a created universe. Not in some clouds as angels strumming on the streams of the harps. I mean, that's wonderful images, but it's not really the whole end of the story. And the psalm tells us this, 
But in Psalm 37 and verse 11, it said that the meek shall inherit the earth, or the land, Eretz, and delight themselves in the abundance of peace. So having abundant peace. And Jesus repeats it as well. And he wants his people to know that there's not just this ethereal, heavenly, disembodied state of glory with God. Though that is part of the picture, as part of the eschatology of the scriptures, the personal eschatology. But there is this cosmos, cosmic eschatology that does involve the salvation, not just of us as individuals, but the whole cosmos, the whole world being redeemed, being brought into the liberty of the children of God, to use Paul's expression in Romans chapter 8. So it's not an unimportant part of biblical truth, even though it's sometimes not the thing that we focus in a great deal upon. It's something that, at least as we come to this passage, that does highlight it, it does accentuate it. The meek shall inherit the earth. I think it's important to underscore what this thing is all about. Now, when it is said in a psalm that is rehearsing the blessings of the nation of Israel, it's speaking of God's relationship to his covenant people. It's rehearsing their history and their future and their expectation. God is very clear that the people that inhabit the land that are wicked and self-interested and are oppressors and violent and persecutors and haters and all the rest. Their tendency upon the land is in short duration. They will be consumed from the earth. It's the righteous, it's the meek that will ultimately inherit the earth, ultimately delight themselves in the abundance of peace. And the wonderful thing about peace in the Old Testament, it's God's shalom, it's God's Abundance. It's not just that there's no conflict, although there will not be conflict in the new order of things, but there will be the presence of abundance, nothing lacking, fullness of blessedness and prosperity. And so the land is the land promised to the nation, promised to Abraham. This land is for you and for your children. But it's an interesting thing that it's promised to Abraham and his descendants, Abraham and his seed or his progeny. But Abraham himself never possessed a square inch of the land, although he did buy a burial ground for his wife. And so you had the caves of Machpelah that he negotiated to purchase and that was there to bury his wife and um, himself when he died. But there was nothing in the way of the possession of the land itself that Abraham knew anything of in his life. And yet the Israelites were to have their portion, their inheritance in that land of promise. And ultimately it was in that land of promise that Abraham's progeny were to live. And from that place of dwelling and inheritance that they received from God in the land, they were to fulfill that other part of the Abrahamic blessing and that they would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. So interesting how in the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 4, it speaks about the nation of Israel coming to be planted in the land. And let me just read it to you. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 4. Um, book of Deuteronomy and chapter 4. Numbers is a long book when you're turning pages. But in Deuteronomy 4, 
It says, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules I'm teaching you, and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of Yahweh your God that I command you. Um, He goes on to say in um, verse 4, But you who held fast to Yahweh your God are all alive today. You didn't perish in the wilderness as the disobedient ones did. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as Yahweh my God commanded me. This is Moses speaking that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all peoples. So in other words, Israel was to occupy the land to be in the sight of all the peoples. The peoples that surrounded them would have heard of the great things God did in redeeming this people from Egyptian bondage. The report of it would have gone far and wide. And then as Israel came into the land and they were living out God's will for them, God's statutes and God's judgments, that is their wisdom and understanding in the sight of all the people, they'd see, hey, that's pretty cool what these guys are doing. This is wisdom. This is understanding. Where'd they get this stuff? And they'll go and they'll say, surely, you see, he's quoting what the the nations will say. Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as Yahweh our God is to us? Where are you going to find such a thing? What's happening in Israel? God is in their midst. God is blessing them. God is walking with them. God is encouraging them and enabling them to be doers of his word and doers of his will. So near is our Lord Lord our God to us whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? And so the nation was to be planted in the midst of the Levant, that region of um, you know, Syria to the north and Mesopotamia and Egypt, the great empire to the south. And, and all the nations of the earth were to look in upon Israel and say, this is a great thing that God is doing. And in that way, the blessing that was given to Abraham and to his seed would then become a blessing to all nations. That God would make them a blessing to all the nations of the earth. That was their calling. That was what they were to be doing. And is there a sense in which this whole picture of a people planted in the land, doing God's will, walking with God, serving God, being a blessing to the nations, is seen in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, in the book of Isaiah, to be a restoration of the very Garden of Eden. Remember when the land became too great for Abraham and Lot to dwell together, there was strife with their herdsmen, and Abraham said to Lot, you choose where you want to live and I'll go the other way. You take the left, I'll take the right. You take the right, I'll take the left. And Lot looks and sees the beauty and the fertility of the Jordan Valley. And he sees it as the garden of God. That's how he described it. This is the garden of God. This is a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the very restoration of Eden from the curse. Now the blessing comes where curse once pervaded the world. Now the blessing of God comes in this land, in this place. And then in Isaiah chapter 50, in verse 3, when the people are being to be brought back from the exile, when God's comforter to come to a people who had been 
receiving from the Lord's hand double for all of their sins. And God now comes in these later chapters of Isaiah with that word of comfort. Comfort ye my people. In the 50th chapter, we have this word about this restoration from exile. Where it says in Isaiah chapter... I'm sorry, it's 51, not 50. Uh, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, 51 and verse 1. You who seek Yahweh, look to the rock from which, from which you have been hewn, and to the quarry from which you were dug. In other words, look, look at your history. Look at where you've come from. Look at where your um, origins were. Look to Abraham, your father. That's their origins. Abraham, the father of this nation. Look to Sarah, who bore you, the mother of Isaac, your father. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. That's creation language, isn't it? He blessed them and, multi- and, and said, uh, uh, be fruitful and multiply, that I bless him and multiply him. For Yahweh comforts Zion, he comforts all her waste places. And the nation had become waste places because the people had been taken off of the land. There was nobody to till the land. The, the land had its Sabbaths and it lay fallow. And it became a, a, a plentiful land for jackals and hyenas and wild animals and such. But there was no man to till the land like it was in the Garden of Eden. When God made man in his image to uh, till the land and to, uh, to serve God and watch over the garden that God had planted for him. And it goes on to say, when you have all all this rem- language reminiscent of creation is that he comforts her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of Yahweh. And so again, the picture is that this is the restoration of blessing where curse once was. This is a return to the garden. This is a return to the purpose of humanity by God's design at creation. But still the reality is, though Abraham was their father and Sarah was their mother, they were not possessors of the land. They were just nomads in the land. They lived in tents, traveling through it, from place to place to place to place. And they died and never actually entered into the promises that God had given in the Abrahamic covenant with respect to the land. You say, what a, what a, what a horrible thing, what a disappointing thing. Poor Abraham. God wasn't faithful to him because he promised the land and didn't give it to him. Well, if you think in that, you're wrong. You shouldn't be thinking that way because this land is something that points to heavenly realities as well as realities to come. Um, Again, this matter of the land being like Eden goes back to creation, but it also looks forward to new creation. It goes back to creation, but it also looks to heavenly realities that come from God alone. It points upward and it points forward. It points to the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. It points to an inheritance that we have both in God and from God. And that's found in Hebrews chapter 11. It really bears it out in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. It shows us that the faith of Abraham was something more than just a real estate in Canaan. It was more than just an earthly piece a property that he was to own. You look at Hebrews chapter 11. I usually give you a minute to turn there, but I need a minute to turn there myself. In Hebrews chapter 11, we read that by faith, this is verse 8, 
Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. Again, the language of inheritance. The meek will inherit the earth. Abraham was to receive an inheritance from God, an inheritance in Canaan. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents, no permanent residency there. He was a nomad, going from place to place, setting up his tents, with Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Again, the language of inheritance. The meek will inherit the earth. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were to inherit the land. But in in so doing, never actually owning any part of the land, there was something greater they were seeking. And it says in verse 11, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. What city is that? Check them. No. Bethel? No. Some city in the land? No. It's a heavenly city. And it's borne out by the fact that in verse 13 it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. They didn't get the land. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, the people who speak thus make it clear they're seeking a homeland. And if they had been thinking of that land from which he had gone out, they would have an opportunity to return. Head back home to Ur the Chaldees or to Iran or one of their old places of residence. But now, as it is, they're not going backward, they're going forward because they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God's not ashamed to call them, their, to be called their God, if he's prepared for them a city. This is God's city. Just like there's a heavenly sanctuary, as he talked about, uh, he talked about in chapters eight and nine. There's a heavenly city. There's a heavenly place of residence where the names of the righteous are enrolled. Uh, the, the, the names of the saints are written in the book of life, written in a heavenly place that people will inherit. In a place that is described in um, uh, chapter uh, twelve as. Um, as uh, the, the, the Mount Zion, the, the, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And, and, and the writer of Hebrews says, that's what you've come unto. You as believers in Jesus, you've not come unto the smoking mountain. You've not come unto the mountain in which the people heard words they could, he couldn't bear to hear. They, you didn't come to a mountain that held forth realities that made you tremble in your shoes. <laughs> you come to realities that beckon you to draw near. To draw near to God. Because again, it's a city of grace. It's a city of salvation. It's a city of heavenly hope that beckons us near. Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable number of angels and festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn, enrolled in heaven. There's a city registry. The names of the firstborn, the names of the people of God are enrolled in, that, in, the, in, the, in the role of the city. To God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. The righteous are made perfect, not on earth, but in the presence of God. They will see God and they will be like him. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, this speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And again, the hope that's set before us is the hope of a heavenly city. Our inheritance as the people of God is a heavenly inheritance. So the meek shall inherit the earth doesn't just point to the earthly city. Through the earthly city, we see the heavenly city. 
Through the earthly city, we see the greater reality that God has prepared for us a city. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 and 4. Peter speaks of us being born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. There's that word again. The meek shall inherit the earth. We've come to an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, unfading, reserved in heaven for us. And yet also we're guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation to be revealed at the last time. So the inheritance is guarded for us in heaven. And we're guarded for it as God brings us to that heavenly reality. So at first, it's a heavenly reality that's safe and secure with God in heaven. A reality that we will go to and receive in his presence at death. But yet there's also a salvation to be revealed at the last time. There's the reality not only of the saints going to be with the Lord, but the reality of the Lord coming to be with us of the Lord descending from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, of the redeemed church that's raised, those who were raised from the dead first, and the living saints coming to meet the Lord in the air, not to go off into into heaven in a rapture, but to return to this earth for the purposes of dwelling in the inheritance that God will, will give, where Jesus will come again to bring in a new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's a concept that's Old, New Testament, but it's rooted in the Old Testament. Again, the end of the book of Isaiah in chapter 65 and verse 17. Uh, we read this. We read, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered nor come into mind. Be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy. God's going to make a heavenly Jerusalem come to earth. Remember in Isaiah, Isaiah begins with Jerusalem being the faithless city. It's the apostate city. It's a city that deserves divine judgment. And God's going to make it the faithful city. And God's going to make it the righteous city. A joyful city. He creates Jerusalem to be a joy. And her people will be gladness. Again, the book tells of the Babylonians destroying the city, destroying the temple. And yet the city is going to be restored to its original purposes to be an eternal city in which the eternal redeemed, the redeemed will dwell eternally with God. So there's a Jerusalem that's above that will come to earth in a renewed, refurbished, renovated and purified new heavens and new earth the new creation that God will bring Revelation 21 and verse 1 then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more wait a minute that doesn't mean in the new heaven and the earth you won't get to go to the beach <laughs> the sea's no more you read the book of Revelation, you see it's the sea from which the beasts emerge. It's the sea from which all the troubles emerged. Because the sea is often the, the, the place of peril. It's the place where troubles come from. It's the place that was once 
what the earth was like before the creation days when the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and every time Israel went into sin that was the judgment that brought the earth back to that kind of uninhabitable condition it's eerie to read it in the Hebrew it says tohu vabohu and that's translated without form and void but it sounds eerie when you read it in the Hebrew because it is eerie to dwell in a condition in which there's no habitable earth and God says there's going to be a new heavens and new earth that's going to be a perfect habitation and no problems, no troubles no beasts from the sea, no troubles from the sea, no people, no Romans coming from the sea if you're living in, in Israel the Roman boats would come right from the Mediterranean and come and be poised for, for, uh, for the attack the Old Testament, the Babylonians and the, the Syrians, they came from the north. But in the New Testament, they came from the sea. And there will be no sea, which means there will be no trouble. There will be no warfares. There will be no beasts. There will be no human empires that will compete with the kingdom of God. God will make all the kingdoms of the earth his kingdom. And the righteous shall shine forth in the sun, as the sun in the kingdom of our Father. The revelation sees the vision. She says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The eschatology of the Bible clearly unites heaven and earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. At the end, he will recreate the heavens and the earth. The heavens, in a real sense, is God's space. Our Father who art in heaven. It's God's space. The earth is our space. And the end of all things is not our going off into heaven, becoming angels and dancing on the clouds. It's an existence of resurrection life where our bodies will rise imperishable. To be united to our souls in order to inherit and inhabit a world an earthly world that has materiality to it just as we have material bodies raised from the dead a world purified from sin saved from chaos brought into close proximity to God who is in our midst in the person of Jesus that's why it says there will be no temple there because the lamb is in the midst of it he's our temple he's our temple God's presence is there in the person of the returning Lord of glory our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's Paul's expectation in Romans 8 of that cosmic salvation that he speaks of, of the creation that was subjected to futility is now going to be set free from its bondage to corruption to obtain the freedom of the sons of God. The whole earth is in the pangs of childbirth until now. And what it's going to bring forth is a new creation as we ourselves grow inwardly waiting for the adoption of sons the redemption of our bodies we're looking for our complete salvation which is our whole humanity being fully conformed to God's will not just in our souls not just we need sanctified spirits we need, we need resurrected bodies united to our purified spirits bodies that are able to live eternally in the presence of God those body soul entities that we were created to created to be we will be recreated to be in this new redeemed world 
A full redemption for you and me, but not just for you and me. A full redemption for all creation. All creation coming forth into the freedom of the sons of God. And so the meek shall inherit the earth is to be seen in terms of our receiving that heavenly inheritance that will become an eternal inheritance at Christ's coming. When our bodies are raised from the dead, and would heaven and earth unite in a new heavens and a new earth. We're a new creation people. We exist in this world as a people whose citizenship is in heaven, from which we wait a savior. We're an eternal people who not only will possess eternal life, we do possess eternal life. The powers of the age to come have come into our experience here and now. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. He's the rightful son. He's the heir to the world. And all who believe will share in his inheritance as we share in his glory in renewed, refurbished, reclaimed, regenerated universe. That's an amazing vision that the Bible sets before us. That's an amazing set of circumstances that constitutes the Christian hope. But that's not all there is to it, folks. That's not all there is to it, amazingly enough. I mean, you say that's enough. Let's go home. Let's think about this. Let's take a couple months off and just think about this amazing reality of what Scripture sets forth with respect to our, our inheritance. But there is another sense in which the meek shall inherit the earth. Again, the tense is future, which is sort of different than a lot of the other blessings of the Beatitudes. Uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That's present tense. Is the kingdom of God. Uh, but there are the future blessings as well. They shall see God. That's a future blessing. Um, but a lot of the matters of seeing God, of, rece- of receiving mercy, of being called the sons of God, these are things that have a present reality as well as a future reality. The blessings of salvation are not just for the there and then. The blessings of salvation are for the here and the now. And so there is this provisional sense, not just a heavenly and eternal sense, but a provisional sense, a sense that exists in the present time. It exists now, in the present time, awaiting the future culmination of Christ's redemption at his second coming. There's not only a new creation that will come, there's a new creation that's already here. If any man be in Christ, what does Paul say? A new creation. A new creation. Behold, all things um, all, all things that are old are, are, I don't remember exactly what he says, but you know how he says it, that all things become new. That the older is passed away. Behold, all things become new. It's not only that we will be heirs, we are heirs, even at the present time. You see, the promise of the land that was given to Abraham is a promise that's given to Abraham's spiritual seed. It's not only a a material promise of life in the land for Israel, but it's also a promise that comes to us of an inheritance from God. And it's an interesting thing in the book of Ephesians, when it speaks of the blessings the Jews possessed, and a part of that is that they possessed the land of Canaan, right? They possessed the promise of ownership of the land, the land grant that God gave um, 
through Abraham. But in Ephesians chapter 2, as Paul remembers what the Ephesian Christians were before the coming of the gospel, he describes their former relationship to the covenant people of God, to the Jewish nation, in these terms. He says, therefore, verse 11 of chapter 2, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, Paul's not talking to me, he's talking to you guys, (laughs) you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Again, physical Jewish people who are given the promises of the physical land that God promised Abraham. Remember that you at that time were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers, listen to this language, to the covenants, plural, of the promise, singular, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off had brought near by the blood of Christ. You are far away from these blessings. These were Jewish blessings. These are the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. These were the blessings that were given to Old Testament Israel. They possessed the promises. They possessed the commonwealth. They possessed the hope of the Messiah. You didn't have any of that hope. But now in Christ you got it all. And in Christ you have also the covenants of promise. They were plural covenants that had a singular promise to it. When you boil down all of God's covenant dealings with the nation of Israel, whether it's the Abrahamic covenant or the Sinai covenant or the Davidic covenant, it all held forth a singular promise. Now we're given to ask, what is that singular promise? As I was about to teach this morning, never got to it, though I think I said some things to the effect that the promise had to do with the land grant. That's the chief thing. That's the reason God entered into covenant. Abraham was uncertain about that part of the promise. Okay, I'll buy into perhaps the fact my wife one day will get pregnant. Don't know how it's going to happen. God says it will. That's okay. But owning this land with all those Canaanites, that was hard. That one was hard. How shall I know that I will possess it is what he asked. And God then entered into covenant that you will know what? That you will possess the land. And you don't have to quake before the giants of the land and say we're grasshoppers in their sight. Your God is able to give you that land. As unlikely as it would seem. And at the centerpiece of the whole thing is that Israel was given the promise of the inheritance of the land through which this great multitude would dwell and live to the glory of God and impact the nation for the things of God. Well, again, that didn't really go too well with Israel of old. They never fulfilled their calling. They never achieved God's intention for them. Instead of being a blessing to the nations, they were corrupted by the nations. Instead of being an agent of truth being spread to the nations, they just filled into miserable habits. Not just before the exile, but even after the exile. Although the exile sort of it cured them of their idolatrous worship, yet it never really cured them of a, a kind of religion that was outward, external, never really hit the heart. And that's, of course, that's the sort of thing that Jesus had to contend with in the days of his flesh. 
But the fact is that in Christ, we who are far from those promises have been have drawn near to the promises. The promises of the hope of the land, the inheritance is now ours. And it's a promise that has to do with, yes, the new heavens and new earth that will come, but also has to do with the promise that's given to us now, as we are now the new creation people of God. There's a singular promise of the covenants. And when we tend to we attempt to say, well, Paul, what's that promise? How does that promise register now? Jesus hasn't returned. The bodies of the dead have not been raised. There's not been the bringing in of a new heavens and new earth. How does the promise of the inheritance come to us now as believers in Jesus? Well, we're told in chapter 1, verse 11, this Paul's unpacking the spiritual blessing that is ours in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. And then Paul goes on to enumerate in this hymn of praise the blessings that come to the people of God. Every spiritual blessing that is ours in heavenly places. Again, these are blessings that are heavenly blessings. Blessings that one day will come to earth. But now at this stage of the game, they're heavenly blessings. Well, where does inheritance fit in? Where does inheriting the earth fit in to heavenly blessings, spiritual blessings, blessings that we have in heavenly places in Christ Jesus? Well, verse 11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance. Here and now. Not there and then. He doesn't say in him we will obtain an inheritance. He says in him we have obtained an inheritance. Being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. We've been predestined to an inheritance. An inheritance, yes, that we will have in culminating form in Jesus' second coming. In the new heavens and new earth. But now, he says in verse 13, In him also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit again the promise is the land and that will come at Christ's return, new heavens and new earth tangible reality of a restored universe but now, here and now we are a new creation people who now through the gospel are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance. And that language of guarantee of our inheritance is really is the Araban in the Greek. And it means the earnest, the down payment. It means we get part of it now of the same kind that we'll get then. In other words, God brings the future inheritance now here in our experience today. Right under the Hebrew speaks of it in terms of tasting the powers of the age to come. The age to come has drawn near in the gospel. Drawn near in the person of Christ. We participate in the inheritance of the saints and light through the spirit of God that's given to us as a down payment of those future blessings. Translated in a popular hymn, Heaven Came Down and Glory Filled My Soul. is <laughs> an old hymn that's sung. It has that aspect to it. The, the heavenly realities of the spiritual blessings of inheritance that we have in Jesus, there and then, it's here and now, through the Spirit that's given to us. 
We participate in the blessings of the inheritance now. We don't have to wait. We have it now. We're possessors now of the of eternal life, of the coming age. We have the blessings of the coming age now. And this language of inheritance is not only said to be that which we now partake of, that we obtain this inheritance through the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of that inheritance, that we're sealed with now. But in the prayer that follows, something else interesting occurs. Is that this inheritance is mentioned again in Paul's prayer. And in Paul's prayer, what he's praying for here is that God would give spiritual sight for the Ephesian Christians to see the blessings they now possess. Look look at the language. He says, I pray in verse 17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom. This capitalized spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. The spirit that's the down payment of our future inheritance. Now he's praying that the Holy Spirit that we've received as the down payment of the future inheritance would be given to us as the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Again, we've come into this new creation, but we're still living in the old. We've come into the inheritance of the saints in light, but we're still living in this age. We have the powers of the age to come that we've tasted of, but we still have the bitterness of living in this age in all of its ugliness, and all of its sinfulness, and all of the darkness that many times occludes the spiritual vision of the believer so that we don't see what we should see, how we should see it. And so Paul's praying, Lord, give them sight to see it. Give them understanding that they may know it. Open the eyes of their hearts that they would be enlightened to know. Well, what does he want them to know? Well, the hope of their calling. That we should live in hope of that coming day when Jesus returns. The great and glorious hope of the believer. His return. And the bringing in of that new creation that will come at Christ's return. But not only that, he says what are the riches of his glorious inheritance. Ah, the riches of his glorious inheritance. Walking in streets paved with gold. Entering into a place where the the tree of life is restored and the leaves are for the healing of the nations. When Jesus is present in our midst. Isn't that all the things we think about when we think of the glorious inheritance that we will receive? And then Paul gives us a little bit of a curveball at this point. But he says, don't just think of the glorious inheritance in those things. Think of the glorious inheritance that you possess. What does he say? In the saints? In the saints? That you Christians, he says, Lord, give them eyes to see the glorious inheritance they have in the saints. What are the saints? Well, Psalm 16 says, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. You see, the saints, they're just a bunch of bothersome people i got to meet with on Sunday. A lot of times they're just bunch of people that don't even greet me like they should. And man, oh man, they hardly ever call me during the week. I got all kinds of complaints about the saints. <laughs> and Paul says, you got to have eyes to see. You have to have the Spirit give you eyes to see what the saints really are. The saints is God's mark of new creation right before your eyes. If any man is in Christ, that means the saints. 
a new creation. We see it in the saints. God's doing a work of transformation. All things pass away. Behold, all things become new. Heaven comes down and glory fills my soul when God's in the business of turning people to righteousness. When God's in the business of saving his people. The meek shall inherit the earth. The earth and all of its ugliness, all of its sinfulness is an earth that God has not abandoned. Because he's told his disciples to go into all the earth. And do what? Preach the gospel. Make disciples of all the nations. Why? That saints might arise from that work of making disciples. That there would be new creations who inhabit this old creation as those who bear the light of that new creation. Witnesses of that great reality that God will do as they are spirit-filled, spirit-anointed, spirit-living people living in the darkness of this age in the light of a new creation. Have you come to see the saints of God, God in that way? In Him we have obtained, in Jesus we've obtained an inheritance. And yet, Lord, give them to see that inheritance is not just streets of gold down the road. It's not just pie in the sky by and by, or it's not just glory then and there. It's the stuff you see in the saints. It's the stuff you see in a new creation that God affects when the Holy Spirit is given to those who believe the gospel. The power of the Holy Spirit is at work in the people of God. And as we behold God's people being made, we see again something of coming glory. That's why we're taught to pray, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And you know, that's, those are three petitions that all of them modify the next phrase, on earth as it is in heaven. We're taught to pray, hallowed be your name on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not just earth as it is in heaven modifies the last. It modifies all of those prayers, all of those petitions. Because we're in the business of laboring upon this earth for the kingdom of God. To see new creations come. God's not abandoned the world, folks. What an incentive to evangelize. What an incentive to pray for the spread of the gospel. What an incentive to understand that this nation, this earth, is not consigned to the scrap heap. Because God's present in this nation. He's present on this earth in you and in me. And we're the salt of the earth and we're the light of the world. He's present in you and me to make his name known, to make his kingdom come. To make his will be done more and more. The proclamation of the gospel on this earth as it is in heaven. We're called to make an impact for the gospel in this world. Bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. It may not be in ways that the New York Times is going to take out its headlines on the front page and say... Christians are making an impact in the world. They're not going to report that. (laughs) But the day of judgment will declare it. And when that day comes, in which the quality of our work will be revealed, I think we're in for some surprises. 
And not just negative ones. It's not just that the hypocrites are going to get unmasked and be be told, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. It's not just that. But it's also a surprise that Jesus says, come ye blessed of my Father. He says, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food to eat. And I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. And I was in prison and you visited me. And we'll say, Lord, when do we do these things? And he will say, in as much as you've done it unto one of these least of my disciples, you've done it to me. It's not a cup of cold water given in the name of the disciple that will no eyes lose his reward. The stuff we do on earth counts. It matters for eternity. The passage in Revelation says, Blessed are those that die in the Lord, for their works follow them. There's going to be some measure of continuity in the world that exists today and the world that will be then. And what we do in this world matters. It matters. It matters. I don't know when the new heavens and new earth comes, what they're going to do with all of the uranium waste that we don't know what to do with. We don't know what to do with that stuff. What do you bury? Do you bury it in the earth? Do you put it in the sea? Do you shoot it into outer space? It's, it's terrible to know what to do with the results of our own scientific endeavors to build these these weaponry and to build uh, nuclear power plants and such do we have this waste that we simply don't know what to do with but the point is those are still going to be questions Jesus will have to deal with when he comes again what happens to that stuff it matters what we do with the creation it matters that we're good stewards of the creation it matters that we have a responsible not a crazy but a responsible commitment to the environment and to, 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 to proper conservation not preservation of everything the conservation that when you you know it's not just good enough to say I think President Reagan is credited with saying once you've seen one redwood you've seen them all I mean come on leave the redwoods alone and it's nice that they've marked out an area where you have redwood trees in the redwood national forest but again you know, we also need the lumber, but plant trees as a result of this, this conservation that Christians shouldn't be at all adverse to. It's part of responsible stewardship. God made him Lord of creation, right? He made Adam Lord of creation. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over it. And don't just exploit it for any, everything you can get. But wisely and, 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 and responsibly and righteously handle all the properties of God's creation in a way that will honor and glorify him. Motives for evangelism. Motives for the way we see life in this world. Motives to see the continuity between the lives we live now and the lives of the age to come. It matters. In a real sense, we're investing for the future, (laughs) for eternity. I know the sin part leaves. But I mean, the righteous stuff, if we're not growing in it, and if we're not looking to excel, I just wonder if even in eternity, we'll be sinless, but maybe we'll be stunted. Do you want to be a stunted Christian in the world to come just because you've been an irresponsible Christian today? Again, we'll all be perfectly blessed, but some will be more blessed than others, it would seem. It would seem there are rewards that some will have that others will not. They save a capacity for rewards that others do not have. There's, there's continuity and there's a need to understand our lives upon this earth that they matter they matter for the progress of the gospel for the progress of the kingdom for the progress of our own spiritual maturation it matters for responsible stewardship of the creation of God 
We'll inherit the earth. Let's not junk it. Let's not write it off. Let's not say it's not important. Because we're after heavenly stuff. Yes, we're after heavenly stuff. We're after heavenly stuff that one day is going to unite with earthly stuff. And there'll be a new heavens, a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. So let's care about both. Let's care about both as part of our profession as believers and our responsible stewardship as disciples of the Lord Jesus. Well, enough said. I hope when you hear the words, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Perhaps you'll see it in a fuller sense of what the Lord intends. Although something else, before before we say amen and before we pray together, just one other thing. What's the relationship between inheriting the earth and meekness? Because you see, those who inherit the earth are going to be Christ-like. They're going to be those who are conformed to the image of Jesus. Whom he foreknew, he foreordained. To what? Be conformed to the image of his Son. And it's interesting that those who will inherit the earth will be those who will be most fully conformed to Jesus in the very area where Jesus defines himself. There's only one place where Jesus tells us about himself, what, he, what, he, what he's like inwardly. Um, I mean, we know he's loving. He doesn't say, I'm loving. We just see it, right? He doesn't say, I'm righteous. We just see it. He doesn't say, I'm pure in heart. We, we just know that's a reality. But he does say to us, I am meek, and I am lowly in heart. And how can we say we are Christ's if meekness is not something we strive for? to emulate and to imitate if we're those who are being conformed to the image of Christ. The Holy Spirit comes to the believer as the down payment of that future inheritance as the one who brings the inheritance of God near. What does he do? He works to conform us to the image of Christ. Like like, Like a mirror we behold in a glass, the glory of the Lord and we are conformed to that same image from one degree of glory to the next, even by the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord comes to take the things of Christ and reveal them to us. He comes to conform us to the image of Christ. And I think it should be apparent that we know Christ and we emulate Christ and we're being conformed to the image of Christ through the Spirit of Christ when the very thing that Jesus says characterizes him characterizes us meekness and the holiness of heart may God be pleased to make us meek for they and they alone will inherit the earth let's pray together Father we're thankful we can look into these various scriptures and see how they interlock with one another see how it provides a full witness to the importance of this world that you've made the stuff of earthly existence is not just something that exists just to be consigned to the junk heap. It's something that is the dwelling place of humanity and is designed to be that at Christ's return. That he will return to this earth. That he will make it into a glorious new creation. And we will honor you and serve you as heaven comes to earth. As the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven as the city of God comes to be the city of man and there is that fusion of your space and our space as we dwell in your presence and in your sight unto the endless ages of eternity we're thankful that we have a hope for that glorious reality 
that glorious truth of uh, not just our own lives are, are, are under that power that saves, but the very world itself will be delivered and redeemed and brought into the liberty of the children of God. And for this we marvel, and for this we bless you, and for this we praise your name. We're thankful for the Lord's Day. We're thankful for the opportunity to gather as your people, to come apart from the things of the world, to be refreshed in our minds and hearts with the truths of the gospel. Be pleased to bless what we've considered today. Be pleased to be with us as we contemplate the remainder of the week that's before us. And whatever we put our hand to do, we will do it with all of our hearts to the glory and praise of your name as we ask these mercies through Jesus our Lord. Amen.